Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> You know what I just love about a Monday? Let me know. It's starting the week with Prima. Yes, especially like, especially after like the Sunday scaries I had this weekend, you know? Oh, it's a thousand percent. It really saved my life this morning, waking up on a Monday after a really scary Sunday and just brought me back to life. It got me going. I was so productive today because of the daily, honestly. She does, she does wonders. I, I can attest to that via the amount of emails from you I saw pop up <laughs> on my screen. I was like, this girl is rocking and rolling. She just, the gift that keeps on giving, which speaking of which, it's your birthday. And so <laughs> I just think that it would be like really, you know, great if like everyone for your birthday could just go and get themselves some Prima so it could be like their birthday too. You 100%, know, it's like- 100%, that's a great idea. Right? I just, every once in a while I have them. For my birthday, I want that for everyone. To the gift of Prima. That would make me happy. And the gift of like relaxation and stress-free. And in case you guys don't know what we're talking about, which it's like our favorite thing in the world. Like literally like- more than politics, which is like pretty crazy. But Prima is an amazing doctor formulated, clinically validated, high performance product related to skin, body, and mind. Prima's daily CBD capsules, which we freaking love, like save our lives on the literal daily, hence why it's called the daily. There's also the sleep tight, which is our nighttime situation that really sets us up for relaxation and getting a good night's sleep, but like doesn't make you groggy in the morning. And like, we're here for that. 100%. So obsessed with sleep tight with the daily, just my mood, focus all the vibes have been high ever since, you know, starting with Prima. And of course, you guys know I can't go a day without talking about the skincare because, you know, since I switched my skincare to Prima almost two years ago, I've never turned back. My absolute favorite is Night Magic. It is a night oil and it has actually forever changed my skin for the better. So you guys, Prima, they are a clean, climate positive and responsibly sourced company, which is one of my favorite parts. And every product is truly amazing. They're incredible. They're in Sephora. They also were called the Patagonia of CBD by Forbes magazine. And then there was just this like other little magazine called Vogue. I don't know if you've heard of it, but they also said, lately I've been swearing by Night Magic, which is like, do I work for Vogue? No, but they're definitely on the same page as me, right? So here we are. But lucky for us, Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive 
limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co and feel better, look glowy every day. Like a donut. Glaze like a donut, baby. Well, it's another Wednesday. It is, for those listening, the day after my birthday. So I'm just going to put that out there. She is officially a dinosaur. Officially a quarter century. Quarter century, but no quarter life crisis here. So that's honestly like impressive. I'm trying to steer clear of that quarter life crisis, but who knows? Maybe it could hit me. I hope not, but here we are. But I would just love for my birthday gift for some action items because you know we're all about that here and may 25th is the first anniversary of george floyd's murder that really rocked and changed the world and in honor of that we want to give some action items in some ways that you know we can continue this fight for justice so we have a link in the description of this episode where you can do a whole list of things like this this link is amazing you, there's resources and information on like how to donate calling your senator they have a full script provided on just ways to continue again this fight for justice and police reform they also provide a social media toolkit on just how to again continue that fight I'm using your social media and your platform they also give you resources to take action on the justice and policing act that we have talked about a few times on this show but Go check them out. Link in the description of this episode. That's what I want for my birthday. I just want everyone to take action and continue the fight, you know? I mean, it sounds like a pretty good birthday gift. Yeah, we love it. We love some justice. There's also another shout out. I feel like we should push out there. And it's just funny to us because we want to give a shout out to Ohio. And specifically, a town outside of Cleveland, Ohio. I think it's called Hugh. I'm going to hopefully not butcher that. We are literally dying to hear from you guys. Like, please DM us if you're from there. Because Hugh, Ohio has the most Girl in the Gov listeners in the country. And just know, we're coming to Cleveland soon. And we better see you all there. We just want to give a shout out. There's a nice little fan base there. And we just, we love you. And like, are you guys all friends? Like, yeah. just, like, do you guys, you guys all know? Yeah, like, you're all can, girl in the gov the podcast listeners. Yeah, and if you're from here, Ohio, DM us. Also, maybe like leave us a review saying you're from here, Ohio, and say hi, because we appreciate you and we want to hang out. Honestly, yeah, we do. And just know when events come back, Cleveland, we're coming. <laughs> and. If you're from Hill, Ohio, and you're one of those fans, join our brand ambassador program because you're clearly telling your friends because all of you, Ohio, apparently is listening to Girl in the Gov, and we appreciate you, and you just deserve to be a brand ambassador. So go sign up for our brand ambassador program. It's linked in this episode description. A thousand percent. And we also want to introduce you to our guest. Please. Which... You may be a little familiar with her because she did make a girl in the gov appearance not too long ago because she is super awesome and we love her. We stand. We're here for it. And that guest is Lala Wu, who is the executive director and one of the co-founders of Sister District. So this episode, we get to dive in a little bit deeper than we did on our IG Live, talk about Sister District, what they have planned, how it works what made her leave her past job and co-found the organization with a few other like-minded women. I mean, we go through the whole litany and then some, and it is a really, really great and informative episode on also just kind of voter basics, getting back familiar with some of those terms that we only hear on big national election cycles, you know, from phone banking to text banking, some of those strategies and whatnot. We tend to kind of forget how they work, and she gives us the full run-through as to, like, what those actually mean, how we can work work with those, and especially we do have some local elections coming up across the great United States of America. So these are things we're all going to need to revisit and 
know. So without further ado, we are going to jump in and here is Lala. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here with you both. Thank you for having me. You know, I have an unconventional path to politics and I was doing something completely different before this and never could have imagined that I am where I am now. And I'm very grateful for all of the twists and turns that have led me here. So I you know, grew up in Seattle and I went to college in New York City. And then I moved back to the West Coast. I went to law school in California and was a lawyer for five or so years. I practiced primarily environmental and energy land use law, which I really enjoyed. And anybody out there thinking about going to law school, I really liked the kind of work that I was doing because I was helping to build stuff. You know, I was helping to get projects off the ground, helping folks really uh, build something new, which I really, really like to do. But then the 2016 election happened and I realized I really needed to take some action to help make volunteering part of the infrastructure of my life. I mean, it's like going to the gym or I don't know, any other habit you're trying to create, you need to find a way to uh, do it constantly, right? So I knew that after that election, I didn't know what form it was going to take yet, but I knew that I wanted to make volunteerism, activism part of Every, my everyday life. So I ended up co-founding Sister District with four other women. And what's incredible is that we were actually mostly strangers. We didn't know each other, but we found each other on the internet and we bonded very quickly. Shout out, so did we. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just been amazing to see what we have been able to grow into from that kind of early connection and around that idea of building progressive power in state legislatures. And I can articulate that now very clearly, but it took us a little bit of a minute to figure out, you know, what is it exactly that we are all about? But we knew that we wanted to focus on states. We knew that that was really important. And we also knew that we wanted to connect our volunteers who we wanted to connect all of the volunteer energy that exists in so many places across the country with real impactful opportunities. So, you know, we just got our start that way. We saw some real viral growth at the beginning. And then, you know, about six months later, we'd all quit our jobs. And I'm so grateful and really just never looked back. So it's been an unconventional but really fun path. That's amazing. I love that so much. That's awesome. Well, can you also explain now, you know, what is Sister District and how does it work? What do you guys do? What is really the mission there? Yeah. So Sister District, primarily, its main goal is to build progressive power in state legislatures. And we focus on state legislatures because they are critical and often overlooked venues of power for Democrats and for progressives. And, you know, what I mean by that is just that this is where the rubber hits the road. You know, this, this is the level of government that really matters so much to our everyday lives, whether that is climate policy or minimum wage or reproductive justice, you name it, it all happens at that state legislative level. And so we do a bunch of different things to build progressive power in state legislature. And I'm happy to go into depth with any of them. But the one that we're most well known for is our grassroots program. And that is our field and fundraising program where we organize our volunteers all across the country into local teams that can then build community with each other, connect with each other, and, and then they get sistered up like a sister cities concept with two to four candidates per cycle for support. These candidates then, these teams will then raise money, make phone calls, write postcards, all of the fun stuff that we work with candidates to help curate what are the most impactful actions and then our volunteers get to get to get it all done. And we're just so proud of the impact we've been able to have. You know, these state legislative races are really fun to work in because they're really small. You know, they tend to be 
not these huge races where you feel like, oh, if I give $5, what difference is it going to make? If I make 20 phone calls, what difference is it going to make? Well, in these state legislative races, you can make a huge, huge difference. You know, the budgets are oftentimes, maybe they can be $40,000, $100,000. We've supported races that didn't even have staff. And we're really proud that last year, in terms of our impact, we were actually able to raise, on average, 10% of our candidates' total cash contributions and make an average of 34% of their total phone calls. So that's the kind of, you know, outsized impact that we are looking to have. And because, you know, people are busy, you know, there's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of choices that we can make about how to spend our time. So we have a real commitment to our volunteers to identify the opportunities that are really just the highest impact and that will give you the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah. And I think what's so cool about this is like, I always think about the, you know, the elections near me that might affect me, but like I live in New York and don't get me wrong. There's some red areas. There definitely are. And people like to forget that, but like, I kind of know where things are going to fall, right? It becomes a fight between progressive candidates and sort of that nitty gritty. But then, you know, you hear about some of these areas that are fighting to be blue. They're trying to turn over, whether it's, you know, upstate New York or elsewhere. And you're like, okay, I don't live there, but I want to get involved. Like, how do I really do anything besides also like, obviously donating is amazing, but how do I do something more? So I feel like where you guys come in, it's just like, it's so innovative and it's so much filling a market hole of like how to get involved in really important elections. And it does lead me to my next question though. And that's how you guys identify the races that need your help? Like, what's the process? Is there sort of like a checklist, a survey? Give us a scoop. Yeah. So we start with our political strategy and we think about what we're trying to accomplish. And so at the highest level, our strategy involves four pillars. And the first is winning elections. The second is supporting organizers. The third is developing legislators. And the fourth is educating and empowering. And our electoral strategy fits into our first pillar of winning elections. And within that, we develop our electoral map and our electoral strategy, which is looking for three types of states. And so what we're looking for is first states where we can flip a chamber blue, second places where we can hold a chamber, and third, places where we can make inroads into badly gerrymandered state. And we can talk about gerrymandering in a bit, but basically it's the process where, you know, a political party draws lines in favor of its own party instead of keeping in mind what is good for democracy or fair representation. And redistricting is the process by which gerrymandering happens. And it is different every state, but in many states, most states, this process is controlled by state legislatures. So uh, back to the electoral strategy, we are looking for three types of states, flip, hold, and inroads. And once we've kind of narrowed down our list of states, then we will look into the chambers and we will dive into the districts. And we use a real mix of quantitative and qualitative method, methods to make our decisions. And basically what that means is we look at the numbers and we also talk to the people. So in terms of the numbers, we are looking at historical voting data. How have people in this district voted over time for you know, not only the president, but also statewide races like governorship and also of course the state legislative seat before. And you know, how is it trending? Does it look like it's kind of going in the right direction for us? Is it getting bluer? Is it getting redder? Which, which direction is this going? And that can tell us a lot. But of course, we know that politics is more than just what a spreadsheet or an algorithm can tell us. It's also about the people, and it's also about the quality of the candidates and their campaigns. And so we, of course, talk to the candidates and the campaigns, as well as other stakeholders on the ground. And so this means we talk to you know party entities, that there are various state parties, there might be local party entities that are interesting that have some insights to offer. There are state caucuses. You can kind of get nerdy about all of the different <laughs> levels yeah. of different types of party folks that are out there. But we also talk to different 
nonprofit and grassroots groups, ones that have been around for a long time, as well as newer ones, volunteers, our, our own volunteers that are on the ground in these states. And we try to gather as much information as possible so that we can make the best, most well-rounded decision about who we should support. And again, it all comes back to that commitment. We want to find these races that are close and winnable and highly strategic so that we can let our volunteers and our donors rest assured that their money and their efforts are going to really worthwhile races. Totally. Are there, okay, are there any races where like you've evaluated and you're like, there's no way that a candidate could win and you kind of walk away? Yeah, definitely. So we we look at a wide variety of races. And at the beginning, we definitely cast a bit of a wide net. You know, we're kind of looking to, to talk to a bunch of different people and to get a sense of what the opportunities are out there. And it goes both ways. You know, sometimes we talk to somebody who we might really like, but we're like, you know, you don't quite fit into our strategy, which is these close winnable races. You might be a really great fit for another organization's strategy. You know, maybe the person is LGBTQ or maybe the person is a person of color. And there are other organizations that are focused on advancing specific types of candidates, you know, or candidates who have a specific type of agenda. For us, really like the problem that we're trying to solve is we think that more Democrats need to be in power in these state legislatures because once we have these majorities, then we're able to get everything that we're, then we have the starting place to get what we want to get done. And if we can't get there, if we can't get these majorities, we're not going to get anywhere. And so there's a lot of different paths to that, that all of the paths involve these close winnable races. And it's really important that we, that we support those. And so that's, that's our strategy. And what I love is that we work together with a bunch of different organizations. And I think that, you know, when you look at the ecosystem as a whole, there is coverage of all the different types of races and candidates. But, you know, we've also, I will say, we've also found candidates that are really wonderful, that are in districts that are really safe, you know, and we're like, this is, you're going to be fine. And, you know, <laughs> you don't necessarily need our help. And so we want to make sure that our efforts and our volunteers' efforts are going to the places that are most strategic. Yeah, that's interesting too. Like realizing that some you might lose, but also some like are just easy wins. So why use your resources there? Can you also highlight some of like the notable success stories you guys have had? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I said last year, I think that I'm so proud of our outcome in terms of the uh, ability we had to have this outsized impact, right? And the this this is what we're looking for is not just like a nice big total number, total number of dials or total number of phone calls, but really that outsized impact helps us know that we've made a big difference. You know, it helps us understand that what we've done really is meaningful to the people that we're trying to support. And so, you know, again, that was on average 10% of our candidates' total cash contribution and on average 34% of their total phone calls just last year. And I should highlight that in a pandemic year where folks generally didn't knock on doors, I mean, that meant that phone calls were the primary way that our candidates and our campaigns talked to voters. And we helped them to do more than a third of that on average. And in terms of specifics, you know, I, I think I'm also really proud of the fact that 88% of our fundraising and 83% of our phone banking efforts went to races that were decided by single digit margins. Wow. You know, again, back to that idea. Yeah, of close and winnable. It means that we are looking for these races that are going to be challenging. And that means we lose sometimes, but it also means that when we win, it means that we, we think that we made a really big impact. So, you know, we had some razor thin victories. And for example, Lori Pahutsky in Michigan is a healthcare champion and a really outspoken champion of women's rights as well. And she was reelected to her seat with our help with only 237 votes. Wow. Right. That is Yes, a small, small margin. And in North Carolina, Representative Ricky Hurtado is first-generation college student. He became the first Latino elected to the North Carolina House by just 477 votes. 
And in that is crazy. Yes, it is. Like these, like slight, slight margins. I think this happens to us every once in a while where we like re remember the idea of like the person that's kind of, you know, whispering in your ear, like my vote doesn't matter. Like it doesn't count. And it's like, okay, I don't know how many proof examples you want, but like here are at least two more. Add it to the pile. Yeah. Yeah. I also love, you know, the idea too. I mean, your vote, obviously, but I also like what you guys are pushing with getting people to volunteer and realizing that like, yeah, 20 calls matters. Like just a few like texts you can send or little things you can do really can have an impact on these elections. And I think that's such an important message to push to. And it's probably such a barrier for people, a mental barrier as to why they might not volunteer on campaigns. They're like, really, what what am I going to do? Like, what can I do about that? You know, so, you know, your vote, your vote matters, like volunteering matters, all of this matters. So I love all of that messaging for sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think that actually like perfectly tags into our next segment, which is I have a stupid question because what is our first question? It is, what is phone banking? So can you explain to us what that term is? Because I know every election, everyone's like, you should be phone banking. But then people that are super unfamiliar with the process don't actually know what it is. And it sounds like a nightmare. Like everyone's like, I have to go back to like cold calling people. Like what? Like, <laughs> like what is also some of the maybe misconceptions too about like phone banking? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, to put it simply, phone banking is basically getting together with your friends, with a community of people, or you can do it on your own time as well, to make phone calls for a cause or on behalf of a candidate. And there is always a script, you know, there is guidance for what you should be saying, and there's goals, you know, what kind of outcome you are looking for. I think where uh, people get kind of tripped up is misconceptions about what phone banking success looks like. And for us, what we try to emphasize at Sister District is that it is a success if you get a wrong number. It's a success if you get a disconnect. You know, it's a success if you identify a Republican who's never going to vote for your candidate, because that means that we don't need to waste our time calling them again in the future. Yeah. And so when it comes to candidate phone banking, what we're often doing is we are calling folks to help increase the name recognition of our candidates and what that means is literally just you know including the name of the candidate and the hi my name is Lala and I'm a volunteer for whoever Lori Plotsky, Ricky Hurtado and so then at least the person on the other end of the phone has heard this person's name before I mean that can be a huge barrier to you know people voting all the way down ballot is like oh have I ever heard that name before I don't know who this is maybe I just won't vote and And then also, you know, educating folks a little bit on the issues, explaining to them, hey, this is what Ricky is super passionate about. This is his story. This is who he is. This is what Lori has done for you while she's been in office in her term. And then it changes throughout the cycle. But towards the end of the cycle is what we call GOTV. And that's Get Out the Vote, which is where folks are, as a phone banker, you would be calling through a list of voters that has been refined throughout the year as the as previous phone makers coming before you have helped to make the list better and better and the data more and more accurate. So basically by the end, the GOTV list should be, these are strong supporters. These are people who are likely to vote Democrat, likely to vote for your candidate. What we have to do is make sure that they do vote because As you know, when it comes to a lot of different things that we wish we wanted to do to, you know, call your mom or go for a run or do your laundry. I don't know. I struggle with doing all of these things unless I'm reminded, unless I have a little extra motivation. And voting is the same way. And especially in so many states that make it so challenging to vote. Another thing that we are able to do during GOTV is to provide a little education, you know, to help people get them the resources that they need. If we can't answer the questions, we can turn them over to a hotline and say, hey, this is the number that you can call. You'll get all the information you need. Maybe you need a ride to the polls, whatever it is. And so you can feel really good about the the work that you're doing during that phase, especially. Totally. I mean, in that human aspect, too, of like hearing someone's voice over the phone, you know, encouraging you to go vote, that 
that goes so far. I mean, that's kind of, I think, the difference with, like, the texting, whereas sometimes I'll get those texts and I'm just like, I don't even read them. Even though I've been there, I've been sending those texts, you know, I was, (laughs) I've done that before. I also, like, manage volunteers on a presidential campaign and it's such a good also point that you highlighted that, like, the hangups, the wrong numbers, the, you know, Trump supporters, whoever it is, like, those are all successful calls and attempts because they help the campaign really sort through voters to again like see if they're worth your time to put them into different tiers like sometimes you'll go on a phone bank and you literally get like two people who actually support the candidate you're calling for but every single one of those attempts even if it doesn't even go anywhere is is helpful to the campaign so i think that's such a like big misconception i'm glad you highlighted that yeah, thanks for sharing about that. And for sure, I mean, it's it's all about, I, I think, framing it um, up for people and setting those expectations. And, you know, any of you out there listening who want to give phone banking a try, would love for you to come give it a try with Sister District. Our phone banking will be starting up soon for our Virginia candidates this year. And it is, you know, it's just about setting the understanding that, yeah, you're going to make a lot of phone calls and you're going to get a lot of no answers that's okay. Move on, you know, and we can, it's all helpful to our broader mission and our broader goal of getting these candidates elected. Yeah. And I think even when we would like train volunteers to phone bank, they would also be like, I'm calling like a bunch of voters from my phone. Like I'm also how I'm going to dial all those numbers. It's like, that's also a misconception of just like how you even do it. Like there's amazing, you know, platforms now where they just literally, you just plug in your headphones to your computer and this like basically the computer just dials hundreds and hundreds of numbers for you until one connects and then your script pops up. It's just like such a seamless process now. So I think that's also important to highlight. But for the next question, let's get into text banking. Like what what is that like and especially how Sister District uses text banking? Yeah, absolutely. So for all of our field programs, which includes phone banking, text banking, postcarding, and knocking on doors, we coordinate closely with our candidates to make sure that they're getting the help that they want and they need. And so the as with phone banking, where we use their list of voters and you know they cut us the list as they as they say, and they prepare the scripts for us and for our volunteers, it's very similar with tech banking. And we work with them and we're flexible as to what you know folks want to what the candidates want to text about, what the goals of various campaigns are, and who to text, et cetera. But as a volunteer, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you show up. A lot of times there is a Zoom or a Slack channel or some other way of kind of uh, communicating with the group that you are texting with. Folks who are either expert volunteers or who are on on staff who can help you answer any questions, troubleshoot any text. But basically, you know, there's really easy platforms that as soon as you are logged onto them, you see that there are some template um, response, some template messages to send out, and you just keep clicking, you know, and you just get a batch of 500 or whatever it is, and you click to send them all out. It's and a good little just, finger exercise. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's a lot True. of clicking. <laughs> it's a lot of clicking, but it goes by really quick, and then you just sit back and you wait, and then you will see that, of course, many folks don't reply, but a lot of people do. And they'll reply to say, yes, I am interested in learning more about how to vote in this election. Or no, I didn't know about this candidate. Like, I'd like to learn more about them, et cetera. And then there's a script, you know, there's canned responses that you can uh, plug in and send to folks. If you have any questions, if somebody asks you a question that you're not sure of the answer of, there's always somebody on hand to help. So there's a lot of different opportunities for text banking out there, but we are excited to offer our program that we try to make really, really tailored and to be supportive and specifically helpful to our candidates. Totally. Makes sense. And obviously, like there's messaging with whether you're phone banking, you're text banking, even if you're canvassing, like there's an idea of having a script. But of course, like there is a goal at the end of this, you know, to get awareness about the campaign and the candidate out there, obviously to hope you know, to get this person or people to, you know, get out and vote. But that happens with a certain type of messaging, which may be persuasion messaging. 
Can you explain a little bit in this context what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So as we kind of go through the political cycle, we talk about three different phases. There's other nuances for sure, but primarily we talk about identification, which is how do we identify the voters that are going to be strong supporters or at least you know, lean our way. And so then we can identify them correctly and follow up with them appropriately throughout the rest of the year. And then it moves into a persuasion phase. And this is where you take all those folks that you have identified as somewhere in the middle, somewhere as possible to persuade, might go your way, but are not quite there yet. You know, then there's a phase of voter outreach and kind of campaigning where you are targeting these folks and trying to win them over. And then finally is, again, like I mentioned, the GOTV, Get Out the Vote universe, which is these supporters and um, strong supporters. And then we're really just trying to mobilize them, make sure they get to the polls and get out to vote. You know, when it comes to messaging and when it comes to kind of everyday political discussions that you might have with your friends, a lot of times we end up talking about messaging for persuasion. You know, how do we message to persuade this group of people that are kind of in the middle? And I think that's incredibly important and we have to do it. And I do think that some of those conversations are are super interesting and need to be had. I think that one conversation I would love to see more of is this conversation about mobilization. You know, how is it that we can get more people to the polls? Because the thing is, there are a majority of us that is Democrats, progressives, liberals in this country. We are the popular majority for sure. It is, but, you know, there is always more that we can think about, more that we can do to better turn out that vote. It can be both, you know, it, it can be hard to get people to register, to show up to vote. It can sometimes be much harder to persuade people to change their mind. And so there is a lot of, uh, I, I think that both conversations are really important and advancing and any campaign uh, needs to have both in its strategy. Yeah. Can you also explain voting records and basically the way you even access these voters' information, like how that all works when people, some a lot of the texts you could get back or even the comments on the phone calls are like, how did you get my number? This is illegal. <laughs> so can you explain some of that of like how campaigns are really allowed to do all this outreach? Yeah, absolutely. So the voter file is a national database that exists of, you know, on both the Republican and the Democratic side, basically you have access to voter data, you know, and who these people are, how they're registered, you know, what district they are in. And what you can do and what people do is they match it up with like commercial databases. And so you kind of overlay some information to find out like that you might be able to get more information about okay what is what are some of the you know kind of maybe affiliations of this person or you know where maybe more specifics more accurate information about where they live etc their cell phone number is a really important one because that's not actually in the voter file itself you have to get that from you know like another database but you layer all this stuff together and then both sides republicans and democrats have all of this data that they try to build on year after year to better understand who are they reaching out to, why are we reaching out to them, and how can we turn them, you know, turn them out and make sure that we are uh, getting the maximum possible impact for our candidate. You know, as for specific vote results, you can't on an individual level see how people voted. And you can see that kind of number in the aggregate, like by legislative district or congressional district or by state. But you can see, and I don't, you don't often see this on the um, scripts that you're using for phone banking, but in theory, like it does exist whether you voted or not in the last election and in previous elections. And so that kind of information is public and folks have done some really interesting experimentation and, excuse me, kind of social pressure campaigns is what they're called, to send mailers to folks to say, 
hey, like we noticed you didn't vote in the last election. Like actually most people around you voted. So it's really important that you vote. Shame. So exerting a little bit of peer pressure. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes there's some messages that are a little bit more like disciplinarian and sometimes there's some more messages that are more encouraging, you know? And I think that there's a lot of interesting research about what works in that realm of messaging to, to help explain to people why it's so important to get out to vote. But, you know, the whole thing about data, it could go, I could go on and on. It's very complicated and there it's are- It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. There are a lot of problems with it, yeah. but we're all doing the best we can. <laughs> yeah, but I think also to your point of organizing and activism and that whole bucket that of course evolves with the times, right? From, okay, like now we need cell phone numbers, no longer landlines, just like different elements. COVID of course changed things even more so, pushing- the dial even further along than I think any of us thought was going to happen in this like last five years. And do you think like, you know, activism and organizing is going to continue to change? And if so, in what ways do you think like in the next like five years, we're going to see some more change? Yeah. Well, I hope to see continual growth in our activism for one. And I think having more and more people get involved and people from all walks of life, you know, young people, older people, people who are mid-career. I think that we've seen an incredible burst of energy since 2016 that has really been unparalleled and to a large extent has really been sustained. You know, we may never see that sort of the same exact thing that we saw in 2017, 2016 again. And frankly, that's okay. Like that was a very intense time. But I do hope that we continue to see more activism, that we continue to see people step up to say, you know, like like we all have, like, hey, this is not an option. Like it is requires democracy is I my friend made this analogy. Democracy is not our parents that we can just look up to and have get security from. Democracy is actually our child, right? Like we actually need to nourish and take care of it. And we have a responsibility to do that. And if we don't, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And so it is really up to each of our individual actions. And I think that there's going to be continue to be new developments in tech that are really exciting, you know, that help to identify new ways of reaching out to voters, reaching out to volunteers, getting the message out about candidates, about causes, you know, everything from the evolution of social media platforms. You know, I'm old enough to, I will date myself, but when I was a freshman in college, it was Facebook's first year of being in existence. And I know it's hard to understand, <laughs> but, but that, you know, since then we've seen all kinds of, and I'm old enough also to remember MySpace and Friendster, which I'm sure you've never oh, yeah. heard of. <laughs> um, no, I was all about my MySpace profile. Oh, I was okay, like, I'd like, I still look back on MySpace and I'm like, I can't believe like I was a coder. Like I fully so coded my MySpace profile to be so cute. It was just so aesthetically pleasing. Like I'll never forget it. Oh my god! Jealous. I wasn't so allowed good. to have one. Oh. That was like the one thing that I like wasn't allowed to have that I actually followed the rules on. So you're welcome, mom. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. So I mean, from those throwbacks to TikTok to whatever is next. I mean, I think that the ways of getting um, folks' message out there is going to continue to change. And that that just means that the creative ways that people can express themselves and also have a message are going to continue to change. I mean, podcasts are a relatively new evolution, right? Like the whole thing is is kind of incredible. Totally. So, so that's, that's another area. And then I also just really hope for an increase in uh, civic understanding and engagement as well and I think that that's what you all do at this podcast so well is really helping to educate folks and expose new ideas and or maybe not even new ideas but just expose what's going on and how government works and how politics work so that we are all equipped to be active engaged citizens right I think that 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 part's really really important yeah totally and I think like just to second pretty much everything you said, but from every level of government to every, you know, season and 
process of government and politics from elections to like post-election to getting in touch with your constituents like or your representatives all of that needs so much evolution and to come into the digital era and I think you know I feel like a broken record because I've said this so many times on this show but I think like 2020 and COVID and all of that really revolutionized or at least started to you know the way we organize and the way we get people out to vote in such an amazing way and I think we saw that with the turnout because people had to get creative and they and it kind of took just COVID to like force people to get creative about it and you know, we found even doing this podcast and just thinking about all the gaps in the market when it comes to like politics and civics and all of that. And there's so many creative ways to pe- get pe- people civically engaged, to get people out to vote. So I'm excited to see how it continues to grow. But it's such an interesting conversation. It's just going to be such like an interesting thing to continue to watch happen. So it's exciting. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Well, I think... You know, that is it. We definitely want to wrap up, but we first want to make sure that we give you the mic to plug everything and anything where people can find Sister District, find you, get involved, like give us all the information. Yes, absolutely. So the best way to get involved is to visit our website, sisterdistrict.com, and there is a sign up right on the homepage. It'll just take you a second. It's just your name and your phone number, basically, and your zip code. Um, And the zip code piece is important because that will help determine, you know, getting you on the right email list for your local team. And again, as I, you know, mentioned earlier, your local team really, we want these to be enduring hubs of civic engagement, a place where you can come over and over again and feel really at home and to, to, to be taking action and to finding the most effective things that you can do at any given moment. So the best thing to do is to sign up. If you are super eager to check an event out right now or coming up soon, we have our State Bridges event series. And this is where we highlight incredible on the ground organizations in each of the states that we are working. And our volunteers and our broader community has an opportunity to raise money for these organizations directly. And the reason we started this program, which is new this year, is really because we wanted to build on statewide successes that we saw in places like Arizona and in Georgia that became true battlegrounds this year and really recognize that that didn't happen overnight. And that has really happened because of the long and hard work that has been done day in and day out by organizers, often women, often people of color, that has happened for years, if not decades. And we have seen incredible successes there as well as in Virginia, where we've been really proud to uh, work for 2017 and 2019 and are excited to be back this year in 2021. The list of what we've been able to accomplish after Virginia got a Democratic trifecta has been incredible. I mean, they abolished the death penalty. They were able to pass their own Voting Rights Act. They were able to make substantial progress on climate goals, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a really a shiny example of what we can do when we win power in the state. And we know that key to doing that is not just the electoral work that we do as our cornerstone here at Sister District, but also this kind of long-term work that is done by organizations on the ground. So you can go to sisterdistrict.com slash state dash bridges, or you can just Google it, Sister District State Bridges, it'll come up. There's a super easy sign up. We've got an event on April 29th, May 19th, June 1st. So would love to see folks there. It's a great introduction. You can hear from our teams as well as these organizations, get a really good overview of how things work here. So, you know, we are off into the races already. We announced our Virginia candidates, our first wave in the middle of April. And so our teams are already busy organizing fundraisers, raising money and getting things off the ground. And this is a really awesome time to join in and come check us out. So please do. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I am so excited to check out all of those links. 
I'd say I'd give you guys a follow on Insta, but I already do, so it's like kind of cheating. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on and of course walking us through all the amazing stuff that you guys are doing and have in the works. And of course, you know, we hope to have you back and to, you know, chat more in depth about, of course, candidates and all of the next things that are in the pipeline for you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Of course, we're sister underscore district. Check us out, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the things. Would love to have you. Maddie and Samantha, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the platform and the ability to just connect with you two. It's been such a lovely conversation. Yes, thank you so much. Moving on. Okay, yeah, so top stories. And what, I mean, what a week. What honestly, what a year, what a, what a century. I feel like every time I read a news story, I'm just like, what in God's name? But here we are again. And fortunately in this one, we are talking about how anti-Semitism is on the rise. So as we dive into this, just giving a little bit of background here, and our friends at The Skim really gave us some, some solid background here as well. So anti-Semitic attacks are the single largest category of religious hate crimes reported in the United States, single largest category. That's wild. Think about how many groups of people there are out there. And religious hate crimes against Jews make up 60% of that. So despite already this insane number, the level of anti-Semitic incidents have continued to rise and they've really reached a fever pitch in recent weeks. So the reason for that is tensions have really flared around the world over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. After 11 days of fighting and more than 200 people tragically killed, the vast majority of them Palestinian, Israel and Gaza agreed to a ceasefire, which, thank goodness. Amid the violence, though, peaceful protesters took to the streets worldwide, many in support of Palestinian rights. Sitting up for Palestinian rights and criticizing the Israeli government does not amount to anti-Semitism. So let's just be really clear there on that connection, okay? But the heightened tensions have given way to anti-Semitic language and attacks, including on social media. And this was like beyond wild to me. One analysis found over 17,000 tweets mentioned a variation of Hitler was right over the course of the last few days. Comes amid a broader surge of anti-Semitic violence in Europe and elsewhere, which it just blows my mind that it's like everyone is always like never again. And yet it's always almost again. Yeah. I mean, just got the chills. Like, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. It's terrible. It's insane. And there are so many examples, so we'll name a few of them. So going back even pre this year, pre this particular reason for this sort of heightened amount of eyes on the, on the scene, 2019 Germany saw the highest number of recorded anti-Semitic hate crimes since authorities started gathering data in 2001, which also Germany, like, I really feel like you guys should have been doing a little more data collection before that. <laughs> I'm just saying. I would, I'm just, I would agree. Right? Like, of all, of all the, but say la vie. So Austria, right next door, has a very similar trend and not too far off. In Italy, last month, not 2019, last month, hundreds of far-right protesters marched in the streets of Milan while appearing to do Nazi salutes. And I will also just side note here is when I was studying abroad in Italy, because oh, hashtag studying abroad, there were swastikas everywhere, constantly. I also will say that when I was in Paris, that I was in a club and someone uh, gave me the Nazi salute. It's very alive and well, unfortunately. And now in London, anti-Semitic incidents have also spiked or reported 500% recent days, including an attack on a rabbi who was left hospitalized. Oh I mean, I just will never understand as we continue to go through some of these examples why people think violence is ever the answer. You don't like someone, you don't like where they stand. Why would you yeah. ever think violence makes sense? Because it doesn't. Let's be very clear. No matter where you stand on these issues, mm -hmm. that is not the answer. And unfortunately, these incidents aren't just limited to Europe or elsewhere. This is also very much a United States issue. Synagogues have been targeted in Florida and New York, Los Angeles, pro-Palestinian group reportedly targeted Jewish diners at a restaurant injuring five people. And then back in New York again, Times Square, a Jewish man was beaten to the ground. Both incidents are being investi investigated as hate crimes, as I will insert in my opinion, they definitely should be. Mm -hmm. In this whole scenario, you know, what really needs to be happened is for us to all advocate for safety and security of those who are marginalized, which means anyone of marginalized community. That means people that are Jewish. That means any community that is marginalized. So call it language that demonizes an entire group of people that doesn't, you know, groups of people are not monoliths. 
identities are not monoliths, so please keep that in mind. But get involved with local community groups that work toward ending hate crimes. As with any minority group, you can really show up to support their businesses, their activists, individuals, and also honestly, like, I think this is, like, the easiest one to do is just to, like, reach out to your friends who feel really affected by this. See how they're doing. Unfortunately, we have just continued to sort of see the situation escalate, and I'm really hoping that, you know, this exasperated scenario de-escalates. No, this is just so shocking, and it's been a crazy last couple days because I feel like it really just has been the last week where this like extremely sharp rise has taken place and like we know you know anti-semitism has been on the rise long before even these last couple weeks of the Israeli-Palestinian violence and now its appearance in some protests is harming efforts to advocate for Palestinian rights and just making long-standing fear among Jewish communities worse and worse. So it really is. I mean, the conversation amongst my friends and I are, well, it's a good thing you don't look Jewish or not going to wear any sort of symbolic jewelry or anything that shows that or identifies that you're Jewish. I mean, there's just so many conversations right now about trying to figure out ways to stay safe and stay under the radar. And I feel like it's interesting to see this come to a head because I feel like I really grew up with this in sort of the back of my head of like, figure out ways to make sure you can hide that you're Jewish at some point. Like it's unfortunately kind of a part of the overarching theme, but there's only so many, so many of us definitely need people's allyship, but I think everyone does across groups. Again, violence is not the answer for any group or any situation. Just want to make sure we are clear. Yeah. Violence is not the answer. Hate is not the answer. Moving on to our next story. This has kind of been a reoccurring story we have yet to fully touch on, but maybe you've seen it in the news about this conversation around teaching critical race theory in schools across the country. So kind of the newest the newest news <laughs> regarding this topic was that on Saturday, Republican-led state Senate in Texas passed a bill to ban schools from requiring lessons on critical race theory. So critical race theory dates back to like the 1960s and 70s that explores systemic racism embedded in the U.S. legal systems and policies. And so critical race theory holds that like racism is systemic and it has been present in institutions, including the law, the economy, schooling, really since our nation was even founded. So basically this push for critical race theory is really trying to expose their students to works by people of color rather than just relying on like the very white majority curriculum I'm sure Sam and I were taught, most people listening were taught, very whitewashed version of our history. But basically, this bill heads to the Republican majority state house for a vote. And there has also been at least 20 states attorney generals that have written the Biden administration, actually, that is opposing Biden's like proposed rule of incentivizing schools to teach things like critical race theory. So... You know, now we have this pushback against against critical race theory across the country, but now we're kind of seeing it in Texas. And this quote from the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, he said, House Bill 3979 makes certain that critical race philosophies, including the 1619 founding myth, are removed from our school curriculum statewide. When parents send their children to school, they want their students to learn critical thinking without being indoctrinated with misinformation charging that America and our constitution are rooted in racism. How, like, that's a fact that it's rooted in racism. It literally... We built this country on slavery. Including the White House. Like... I just... What? I... Um, Well, I think critical race theory is extremely important. I feel lucky I got to like learn it in college, but it definitely should be taught to our children across the country. Because again, like our history classes growing up are just extremely whitewashed and Eurocentric and just not the full 
version of the truth. So retweet. But that is it for this week. Subscribe, rate, review. Please review this podcast. Just letting us know in our reviews that you learned something. That would just, you know what? That would make my birthday as well. Very lovely. So if you want to celebrate my birthday, say happy birthday. I learned something from your podcast in the reviews and that'll be my gift. Maddie, that's three gifts. Two. Two gifts. Take some action. Prima. On the anniversary. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, fine. Okay, I get three gifts. I deserve that. Prima. So go check out Prima. Check out their products. Get something. You'll love it. Two. Take some action on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Three. Leave a review on this podcast. I mean, happy fucking birthday. (laughs) And that is it for this week. We will be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.